0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. I know how these stories usually go. I heard it from my cousins, best friends, roommates, brothers, sisters, dog walkers, hairdresser. But this story legitimately happened to my best friend in front of my head face. So this is back late 80s, maybe early 90s. I was like in elementary school right before junior high. November 1st, day after Halloween, we had a great haul. We're sitting up on top of my best friend's roof. He's got a two-story house. We're just relaxing. It's a cloudy day, listening to the radio, eating our candy, just shooting the shit. We finally running out of candy, we find this what we thought were stickers when this crazy house that we went to never, you know, we don't usually go to every house, we went to this one, the light was on for the first time in years. We thought it was stickers. Ended up being those crazy lick-on, rub-on tattoo things. And they were kind of cool. They had, like, Mickey Mouse. They had, like, Batman, Superman symbols. And my friend's a big Superman fan. So he goes, licks the Superman thing, sticks one on each forearm. Thinking, boom, he's like Superman, making jokes about it. He's like Popeye Superman because he had him on his forearms. Thought it was funny. We went on. About five, ten minutes later, he starts laughing at stuff that's not really that funny. Asking questions that I don't understand. Next thing I know, he's standing up on the edge of the roof talking about he thinks he can be Superman. If he really thinks hard enough that he can do it, then he just decides to leap and he jumps off the freaking roof. And I'm sitting there thinking my best friend just jumped to his death. Luckily, before I can even scream out, I hear a thudding splash because somehow he missed the concrete and landed in the pool in his backyard. I run down as quick as I can. He's floating unconscious in the water. His parents are freaking out. Everyone's going nuts. Apparently the tattoo had like LSD in it or something because he was tripping and we were banned for trick-or-treating for the rest of our lives. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the
1: wall... Everyone in blood. has
0: the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. this is telling you stories of the old... There was
1: this girl... It was back when we were little kids. To
2: find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake.
1: And I'm Sam.
2: And we're here to tell you a story.
1: Each week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans.
2: And we have a storm brewing in Texas. You might hear some ominous thunder behind to set the mood.
1: Uh, the mood for this one really doesn't require thunder.
2: We always require thunder.
1: (laughs) You and I might personally, but I feel like this is kind of a hippy-dippy-trippy urban legend.
2: You're right. And this is a classic urban legend that we're doing today. Before we get into our super classic hippy-dippy-trippy urban legend, we need to thank all of our listeners.
1: We love our listeners. They're our favorites. Like, really, you're the best percentage of the population. I know it's true. We want to thank everybody that's been reaching out to us on Twitter
2: all of our lovely reviewers on iTunes, such as JB Action and former Linda. Thank you so much.
1: You're probably our favorite of our favorite. And I'll say I want to remind everybody about the Just a Story hotline. This is a place where you can call and just, you know, talk if you want to. Or you can tell us about some of your hometown urban legends. Or just call and tell us a story. That's all we're, it's kind of there for. You can reach us there. Our number is 512 Two two two, three three
2: seven five. For all of your urban legend emergencies.
1: Urban legend emergencies, oh no.
2: So back to our story at hand today. What's our story? Well, it's the Blue Star Acid urban legend.
1: Oh my gosh, this sounds like something that would have circulated on the prayer hotline. That's not what it was called
2: at my church.
1: Oh gosh, what was it? The prayer list.
2: You're right. This was frequently. Sent around by church groups and parent groups. But, I mean, what is the legend?
1: Okay, so apparently there was some nefarious drug dealer who realized children are the target market.
2: Oh, Um, definitely. Yeah, Yeah. and,
1: like, if you can get them to give you their lunch money, you will be rich in, like, five seconds. So this guy devised a plan to lace temporary tattoos with acid. Genius. Genius.
2: Because who doesn't want a better client base than third graders.
1: Right. It's the people who can't actually go get tattoos legally. That's who you want to target. So he would put LSD in this and then they would put it on their skin and the LSD would be absorbed into their system and they would get crazy high and then they'd be addicted forever.
2: And then they die. And then
1: they die. Right. Then you have sex and then you die. So they say, I mean, girls,
2: right? It's pretty much true. Yeah.
1: So yeah, that's the urban legend is that. Some nefarious drug dealer targeted children by putting LSD in temporary tattoos.
2: Yeah, and so this was sent around in numerous newsletters and bulletins, and a lot of them had big caps saying, This is very serious. Young lives have already been taken. This is growing faster than we can warn parents and professionals.
1: I would disagree, because it seems like they were way out in front of it, because it hadn't happened yet. (laughs)
2: That's <laughs> uh, very true. So
1: do you know why it's a blue star? No. Because it was started, like, one of the biggest instances of this was in Dallas. And it was uh, supposedly a Cowboys logo.
2: Oh, another reason I hate the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah,
1: America's team my ass. We're in Texas. Someone's going to
2: compete us up. <laughs> Go Saints.
1: Right. Go Saints. Javis is my boyfriend. All right. So, uh, but it's not just the blue star, you know.
2: No, of course not.
1: There are other rumors about... Images like Mickey Mouse, clowns.
2: I would never put a clown tattoo on I me. I know. Yeah, my chlorophobia is too hard.
1: Yeah, no. And Bart Simpson was also another, which dates this a little.
2: <laughs> yeah, but it did change over time. You know, it started as Mickey Mouse, and then it would kind of transition as you get into like the 80s and 90s and be like, Bart Simpson, oh no. Yeah, all the
1: kids love Bart Simpson. They're going to put him on yeah.
2: But you know, I mean, that idea is not that far off. You'll see... You know, like, ecstasy tablets with Batman logo on them.
1: Well, I would take that. And honestly, if the clown was the Joker, I might put the tattoo on. In 1980, there was a report of a bust by the Narcotics Bureau of New Jersey State Police, which referred to the marking on blotting paper as stamps, which means that, like, they would take paper and put it in a solution with LSD in the solution, I'm guessing?
2: Yeah, that's a real thing. So blotter acid is a real thing. You have little pieces of paper that are dipped in LSD, and you just you know place it on your tongue, etc.
1: Okay, well, apparently these were marked with super cool logos like Batman.
2: Yeah, which is, again, true. A real thing that really happened.
1: And in their report of this incident, police stated that children may be susceptible to this type of cartoon stamp believing that it's a tattoo transfer
2: okay so we have like a real origin to possibly the story
1: right which is rare rare in the urban legends but it does make sense because you're supposed to wet the paper and i can see kids like licking it to wet it or whatever i can see how the the rabbit trail yeah the logic plays out yeah. a
2: little bit
1: and as we well know here on this podcast nothing makes a threat seem more legitimate than an official-looking signature on a document.
2: Oh, of course, definitely.
1: So a lot of these bulletins were signed by Jay O'Donnell of the Outpatient Chemical Dependency Treatment Service at Danbury Hospital in Connecticut. But everybody that read the bulletin, or a lot of people that read the bulletin, tried to contact them and get in touch with this guy and find out more ways to protect their children, and they never had anyone there
2: employed with that name. So people are just calling this hospital, and they're like, that's not a real person.
1: Yeah, basically, over and over again.
2: You but should not have read that chain letter.
1: Yeah, gosh. And the Nigerian prince isn't here either, guys. Okay. And that started in 1992, that people started calling for Jay O'Donnell. If you find him, let us know. Have him call the just a Story hotline. We'd love to hear from him.
2: This is another urban legend that plays in our fear of people trying to corrupt children.
1: Right. And get them hooked on LSD, because, you know... LSD is super addictive.
2: It's
1: not. Oh, is that your medical opinion? Yes. Oh. (laughs) If it's not in a blue star tattoo, and I don't have to worry about accidentally getting it, I feel like we should take a moment to define what LSD stands for besides Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds.
2: Right. So LSD is a psychedelic drug. It was invented in 1938 by Albert Hoffman, who is a Swiss scientist. And he derived it from ergotamine. He was trying to derive different things from it, and he created this lysergic acid diethylamide. I like
1: LSD better. That's much more effective.
2: That's why it's called that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can remember that when I'm high. So how did did Hoffman test this?
2: Well, he was originally looking for something that would increase like heart rate, respiratory rate. Speed. Kind of. And he... Created this, didn't really do what he wanted to do, and he shelved it. Okay. And something that is really actually happening more frequently in science, but didn't happen as frequently then, is one day, years later, he decided to go back to some of his past experiments and found this compound. As he was synthesizing it, it's assumed that he accidentally got some like on his fingers or something like that and then got it in his mouth.
1: Yeah, because they weren't, like, really into clean practices back then, right?
2: Well, they were, but I guess Hoffman maybe wasn't. And he began to feel strange, and he kind of stopped his work and went home early, and he began to feel restless and dizzy. But then as that kind of cooled off, he started having this dreamlike state, perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors.
1: That's a a side effect, brah. Is that what he said?
2: <laughs> if that's what they say in Switzerland in the 40s. Bra. He was.
1: There was an umlaut in yeah. the
2: brah. <laughs> and so they started manufacturing it and trying to figure out things that he could do with it. And in 1947, they started selling it as a commercial medication. And it was used for psychiatric use, and they would do these different types of analytical psychotherapy with it.
1: Psychoanalysis while on acid sounds like something they do in Guantanamo Bay.
2: It kind of does, you know. Really, they you know, they'd be tripping balls, and <laughs> and then Freud would be sitting there like asking about the mother. You know?
1: Tell me about your mother. The mother.
2: But so this drug was called Delacid. It affects your serotonin and dopamine receptors in the brain.
1: Now, I have an off-the-wall question, and you may not know the answer to this. Does anyone still use this shit?
2: Yes. What? Yeah, they're actually <laughs> starting to use this in really, really small trials to start to look at the effects of LSD on people doing fMRIs and doing study groups and seeing how it affects different things, and they're looking at this old research that was done in the 50s and 60s and trying to replicate it. Like, one study that was done in the 50s was with AA members, uh-huh. and they gave it to AA members mm-hmm. um, that were having trouble stopping drinking, and years later, half of them had not had another drink, which is much more successful than the AA program is. <laughs> I was
1: kind of half joking.
2: Yeah, no, and then they <laughs> they, re- they redid the study with alcohol has similar effectiveness rate. They redid it with Cigarettes and also had a really high effectiveness rate,
1: ah, about that, so what is the difference between delicid and lsd
2: um nothing to my knowledge. I think they're the same thing.
1: It's just how they labeled it
2: yeah it's at what that the time. it's what the three minute drug commercial would call it
1: okay. Side effects may include tripping balls, seeing pink elephants and or scratching your skin off.
2: no that's uh p c p
1: okay. <laughs> and death.
2: So in reality, you know, taking this medication causes an animated sensory experience where you can see radiant colors, objects and surfaces can appear to ripple or breathe. You have eidetic imagery, which is kind of like these colored patterns when you close your eyes. An altered sense of time, you can see morphing of objects. And everyone's favorite, synesthesia.
1: Oh, it's where you can, like, smell color? Yes. I love synesthesia. I've always wished to have it. One of the most interesting synesthesias I've seen reported is people who see numbers as different colors. Like, not when they're high, just in real life. They can look at a paper and, like, find all the fours in two seconds. They've, they've like, tested it.
2: They'll find, like, musicians with uh, synesthesia where they can see the music and they can tell you this, you know, this note is green or this note is aquamarine and that's how they play music.
1: That's so cool. It's like a superpower. Well, in America, we kind of have a weird relationship with hallucinogens because when they were introduced in our culture, we really didn't have a frame of reference. We didn't associate them with any particular kind of person. Where alcohol, you're like, oh, it's that slovenly bastard that never takes care of his wife and gets angry. People have like associations between drugs and usually negative character traits. But when hallucinogens kind of came of age in America, they did it in a strange way because there were reports like in Life Magazine in 1957, this writer and his wife went to Mexico and met with a shaman who brought them out to this little hut and gave them the God's flesh mushroom, which contained psilocybin. And they went on this incredible trip on the mushroom and with the shaman in the Mexico and he came back and wrote about it in like the Extraordinary Adventures series for Life magazine. And that's, you know, the way most middle Americans kind of found out about hallucinogens. It had like this air of credibility about it, like this intellectual bent.
2: Yeah. And there were a lot of people that were associating these feelings you get with LSD, with kind of this Almost religious experience.
1: Right. Very fantastical images and delusions of grandeur, maybe, in some cases. Like, feeling very connected with God and higher powers in the
2: rest of the world. Right. Well, LSD breaks down that feeling that you have of oneself and the world. And you start to have that feeling of kind of oneness,
1: Make me one with everything.
2: Yeah, it's related to kind of the breaking down of our frontal cortex's connections with the rest of the brain. And it kind of breaks down some of those patterns that we are normally stuck in.
1: Would you like to hear a terrible joke?
2: I would love to.
1: What did Buddha say to the hot dog vendor?
2: What did he say?
1: Make me one with everything.
2: I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: I love bad jokes they're my favorite in fact so with that being said with America not thinking that all people who do hallucinogens are social degenerates there was a moment when certain culturally prominent people believed that LSD and or other hallucinogens were the path to enlightenment
2: Yeah, it, this is far before what you're thinking this is not the hippies
1: oh no this is the prequel and it was better these are the beats.
2: I love the beats.
1: I wear my Howl t-shirt every time I go pick my child.
2: Everyone's always like, oh, I'd be a hippie if I was lived another time. Or I would be a flapper or something.
1: I would be a flapper. Or I'd be a beat. Uh, I'd, I'd be a beat. Yeah. I think you would.
2: I mean, like, just sitting around, like, drinking coffee or alcohol and smoking cigarettes and listening to folk music. I mean, that's kind of my life. That sounds amazing.
1: Okay. So, for those of you who don't know... The Beats were kind of America's proto-counterculture movement. They were people who became disillusioned before it was cool. They were sort of maybe like hipster hippies. Hard to explain. Mainly based in San Francisco. And New York. And New York. Yeah, the village definitely had a beat scene. I don't want to
2: discredit that. People
1: like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. Those are the two I
2: always think of. Yeah, you could list off 50 people. Yeah. But they were basically in that group. They were all friends and they all had the different... Um, monikers in Kerouac's book. On the road. Well, in all of his books. Yeah, that's true. And people love to try to figure out who is who. Yeah.
1: So, Ginsberg was one of the the prophets of the beat movement, and he was a poet, and he looked like one description I found today said he looked like a Hasidic Jew stuffed in a bear skin. That's amazing. So, that's there you go. And he's also bald. There's some fantastic nude portraits of him that we saw in New York. (laughs) That's another story. Openly gay, like in the fifties, Jewish brought up in New York, really cool guy. Suggest you go read everything he ever wrote. Pause, go read it. All of it. All of it. You okay? I'm sorry. Do you need a hug? Call the Just a Story hotline and tell me about it. Okay. So he made friends with this fellow named Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary did not look like he should get to hang out with Allen Ginsberg.
2: What did he look like?
1: He was very clean cut and like very buttoned up, and had short hair. They all remarked on his short hair. Kind of, I mean, he looked like a psychology professor.
2: Because he was a psychology right. professor. Right. Yeah.
1: Good. Good catch there. At Harvard, and later he became kind of a psychedelic guru who started like a lot of communes, and they did orgy stuff and things. Fun. Yeah. And he also kind of coined the thing that would be the meme for the era. It was a. Uh, Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Now, in this era, turning someone on meant giving them hallucinogens.
2: And so he was all about doing that.
1: Yeah. One night, on November 26th, 1960, he decided to give Ginsberg some psilocybin.
2: So psilocybin's a psychedelic mushroom with similar effects to LSD.
1: Right, and it can also be synthesized synthetically. There we go. Redundancy is fun. So after having quite a bit of this, Allen Ginsberg wanders downstairs naked. Of course. Yeah. And he declares that he is the Messiah of the psychedelic revolution. And he tells Leary to bring him a phone and he gets the phone and he starts trying to call the white house and the Kremlin to get in touch with Kennedy and Khrushchev. Why? To tell them he's God.
2: Okay.
1: He tells the operator, she's like, may I ask his calling? He's like, it's God, G O D, God. Of course. Okay. <laughs> like, spelling it out just so she's clear. And when he can't get in touch with Kennedy and he can't get in touch with Khrushchev, he calls Kerouac because we're on a K thing, I guess. Well,
2: that's the next on the and list. The,
1: like, right, obviously.
2: I think, like Khrushchev, Kennedy.
1: What's he doing? Like, going through his address book, you know, like in the case. But so he calls Kerouac and he tells him, I'm high and naked. I'm the king of the universe. Get on a plane. <laughs> It's time. And so he decides that this is the start of the psychedelic revolution. He and Leary decide that if they can connect with culturally impactful people and get them started on this drug, it will usher in a new wave of consciousness.
2: It's a wonderful idea.
1: Right. So who
2: do you give this drug to?
1: Well, you start with Thelonious Monk. Awesome. Right. So Ginsburg goes back to the village with his mushroom pills and starts passing it out to musicians and painters and poets. Theolonius Monk was one of the first people he gave it to, and he came back a few days later, and he's like, got anything stronger? <laughs> I love him. <laughs> anyway, he also gave it to Dizzy Gillespie and John Coltrane. He was just basically looking for anybody he thought might be a genius and giving them
2: mushrooms. He, he found some. He
1: was like Santa Trips or something, <laughs> I don't know.
2: Merry Christmas, Man. have some mushrooms. <laughs>
1: Spreading Christmas cheer Leary would also do this kind of with movers and shakers more in nightclubs you know like more like patrons than performers like
2: he'd go to the cool spots
1: yeah he'd go to the, the hip cat spots and he had a mayonnaise jar that he kept like his, his psilocybin powder in
2: was there mayonnaise in it? no it was okay. like
1: psilocybin powder I guess but he would like just give people spoonfuls of it and they're like, oh, there's Larry and his mayonnaise jar. It got to be a thing. They had this idea that if we could replace America's drugs, we could replace their way of thinking. Because we
2: were essentially just out of philosophy. That's a great quote. Right? The, wait, like, wait. Were they trying to take away my coffee and alcohol? That's exactly what they were doing. Those were their Screaming. targets. yeah. <laughs> right?
1: Right? Yeah, they were giving it to random people. Most of the time, the people knew it, to be fair. But they were friends with a woman named Mary Pinko... Meyer.
2: Okay, another mover and shaker.
1: She was a painter, and she was also purportedly JFK's mistress.
2: Did she give LSD or psilocybin to JFK?
1: I can neither confirm nor deny. I know she smoked pot with him in the White House. Amazing. That's pretty pretty well documented. But interestingly, we don't know that much about their relationship because she was murdered a year after Kennedy was assassinated and all of her diaries were quickly confiscated and her murder remains unsolved.
2: Oh, no. Conspiracy.
1: But, but maybe she gave J.K. a little acid. Yeah, she did. Sure. Yeah, I think she might have. Let's just say it. She, she kept telling him, she's like, I know a man who's in a position of power that I think would benefit greatly. And they were like, okay. And then finally she talked him into giving her a little supply. And she did take it. So, who knows?
2: I can only hope. That sounds kind of positive. You know, People are trying to make positive changes by expanding people's minds and changing their philosophy and allowing them to experience new things. And, you know, we were talking about new research with LSD, and that's kind of been confirmed in these really tiny studies, which would be interesting to see bigger studies about it, uh, showing that people that even offer one dose – of medication, have a really reduced amount of anxiety and depression in their lives after taking it for years later. It's a magical mystery drug. It's perfect. We started off with this episode talking about these terrible drug dealers that are after people and just secretly giving them LSD.
1: Right. Can you imagine how horrible it would be to accidentally take a LSD and not know what is happening? I mean, thank God that's never happened.
2: But of course it has.
1: Oh no. Well it's gotta be some shady, nefarious character that's dosing people, right? It is. Oh, okay,
2: good. It's the United States government. Oh no. <laughs> so the CIA started a program in nineteen fifty-three called MK Ultra. That's my stripper name. <laughs> now your stripper name is Positioner Gordon. <laughs> it's supposed to be the color of your underwear and the last thing you ate which we just get Indian food. So they, they'll be really, mine is let's check stripy tiggy masala. <laughs> oh What's yours?
1: I am. I am coral. I'm coral curry, <laughs> which sounds more like a news anchor than a stripper. Good job.
2: I think it's wonderful. So, MK Ultra was kind of an umbrella term for lots of different experiments that the CIA did on bio and chemical agents. And, in quote, they were developing a capability in the covert use of biological and chemical materials. And the thought behind it was that this was defensive. They were going to develop this tech because others would. Kind of same with the bomb. I mean, if they're going to do it, we have to do it too.
1: Right. Like One thing I remember reading about a group of scientists who decided that Russia was definitely going to put LSD in the water supply. So they got this scientist to come in, and they're like, hey, can you test and see, like, what amount of LSD they'd have to put in the water supply to make an entire town go crazy? And he's like, yeah, I'll test it. And he's like, oh, hey, I wanted to call and let you know I did some tests. And don't worry about it. The chlorine in the drinking water neutralizes the LSD, and it has no effect. And they're like, okay, well, can you figure out how to get around that?
2: I mean, we're not going not to not not do it. it. Like, not, no, we never. I mean,
1: obviously, mm. but just, you know, in case...
2: Just, just saying. So LSD was a big component of it, but they did do some other things before they really got on the LSD train. Or even wh- while they were. So some of the things they were trying to research were like promoting the intoxicating effects of alcohol. Hypnosis. Uh, producing amnesia for events preceding and during their use. Shocking and confusing over extended periods of time. And producing physical disablement such as paralysis of the leg, acute anemia, etc. That is all from the Senate congressional investigation of this, years after it had stopped.
1: I feel like anything that has the word brainwashing in an official document is utterly and completely terrifying. And I'm looking at it here. Yes.
2: In quotes, brainwashing.
1: Oh, good. So they they, they started out doing this kind of stuff, just sort of exploring what the drug could do and what drugs in general could do. And they realized that you know, drugs weren't the al- only alternative methods that they could employ. There were plenty of tricks up their sleeves.
2: Oh, really? Oh, really? Like a thing of flowers?
1: Uh, scarves for days. So they employed magicians to write a manual for them. Uh, describing sleight of hand so they could deliver things to each other more easily. And it was called the Manual for Trickery and Deception for the CIA. That is an incredibly interesting aside. They also had magicians figuring out how to hide devices and pens and things like that. Plain sight kind of stuff. And uh, they also used electroshock as a means of making unwilling subjects talk.
2: And so the government really got in the LSD business in 1951 when the CIA heard from some of its ears, on the ground, (laughs) that a Swiss drug company, Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, had a 100 million doses of LSD, and they were going to sell it to whoever wanted to buy it.
1: Woo! We better go before the Russians do.
2: Exactly. (laughs) That was basically our go-to answer to anything.
1: Our excuse. I mean, our reason. They went to... Switzerland to purchase the drug and they found out that they didn't really have a hundred million doses of LSD available. Someone had moved a decimal point whoops, too much drug testing. They only had 40,000 doses, but they bought them. Of course. Yeah. Cause merchants could take that too. I mean, come on.
2: So with 40,000 doses of LSD in hand, the CIA started its experimentation. And the head of this was Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. He was the head of the CIA's chemical division. He was an interesting character. You know, he was a really young, intelligent person, very driven. He also had a stutter. He had club feet, but also had a penchant for dancing.
1: That's delightful. <laughs>
2: Isn't like everything I read, they mentioned that, so I feel like I have to. <laughs> he got on his team a man named George Hunter White. Mm. And he oversaw all of these undercover testing he previously was a narcotics officer and had all kinds of crazy kind of adventures he even wrote an autobiography at one time which ne- was never published <laughs> kind of talking about all this craziness he he ha- did but like he was an undercover heroin trafficker and helped catch this chinese gang of heroin traffickers <laughs> another man named ike feldman and we'll talk about him in just a second <laughs> yeah in a memo that go Labrote to a researcher, he kind of talked about what he was looking for for mind control. He wanted it as both like offensive and defensive purposes. So, quote, A disturbance of memory, discrediting by aberrant behavior, alteration of sex patterns, eliciting of information, suggestibility, and creation of dependence.
1: It started out pretty credibly And then the boys started playing with the inventory. It sounds like they got a
2: little raucous. Well, they were, it was kind of encouraged.
1: It was kind of encouraged, but like somebody got wind that some prankster was going to dose the punch at the Christmas party for the CIA with LSD. And they had to write a very strongly worded memo that says, I discourage putting the substance in the punch as it can cause insanity for eight to 18 hours Possibly longer.
2: Of course, the CIA agent continued to dose each other.
1: First, it was like, you will know about it, and you'll get to go in a little room with padded walls and take your acid and, like, know what your acid's gonna do to you.
2: But then it wasn't.
1: Yeah, then it was like, ha, get him.
2: (laughs) White started some of his experimentation. He has no scientific background. But him and his wife would host parties. Uh Uh-huh. And they would give their partygoers spiked drinks. Spiked with LSD. Fun. Oh my gosh. And he would just watch watch everything go on and take notes.
1: So he wouldn't take it.
2: Oh, he would take it too. <laughs> he liked so it. So how did
1: out. how did his notes work out for him?
2: <laughs> like completely incredible. Probably he would, reads he, like
1: he, Allen Ginsberg poetry. <laughs>
2: probably so. He talked about the giddiness and the fun things that can be associated with LSD, but he also talked about the horrors, like Marlon
1: Brando. <laughs> just like that. The horror. The horror. Okay, so he moves to San Francisco, and he opens, and listeners, I shit you not, this is actually true, a government-funded whorehouse. Hell yes. And the purpose of said government-funded whorehouse, which he calls The Pad.
2: Oh, that's such a cool name.
1: Oh, wait, you want to hear a really cool name? Yes. He does this on behalf of an operation codenamed... Operation Midnight Climax.
2: I think I saw that movie. I
1: know. Operation Midnight Climax is going down in San Francisco. He has this brothel that he's set up. He gets drug-addicted escorts from the streets to take part in this. He promises them $100 a night and basically immunity were they to get caught doing what he asked them to do. And they would go out and they would meet a nice John. And they'd bring their John back to the pad. And they'd offer him a cocktail And unbeknownst to John, they've slipped a little something in his cocktail.
2: Oh. Oh. Well, and so, some of the great things about this brothel is that it was, of course, decorated by a bunch of CIA agents. (laughs) So it has a bunch of pictures of, like, women in bondage. And it had a bunch of Toulouse-Lautrec paintings.
1: (laughs) Nothing says sex me quite like a... Moulin Rouge replica uh, from a three-foot-high vantage point.
2: One of his main operatives that we mentioned briefly a second ago, Ike Feldman, serving as the pimp. And he would dress exactly like a CIA agent watching too many movies would think a pimp dressed <laughs> like And he would just act the part and they installed two-way mirrors in all the rooms. So the CIA agents would go and drink a ton of alcohol, and they'd watch these prostitutes have all these crazy LSD-infused chem sex while sitting there watching drinking. <laughs> oh, the but they were taking mirror.
1: notes. It was all for a purpose.
2: Yeah, it's scientific.
1: I mean, they were they were able to take notes enough to... Write a little dossier on how to exploit the art of lovemaking for espionage purposes.
2: Of course. (laughs) You know, it's important to note that White was kind of a kinkster himself. You don't say. Well, he was a member of like swingers groups and would host swinging parties. And that's some of those parties that he uh, was spiking people. But White also continued using LSD and developed this kind of alternative persona of like a merchant sailor or an artist. And he would go into the dregs of San Francisco looking for people to spike. And the yeah, CIA agents at the time were just spiking like anyone they came across just because they were all willy like nilly. It. Just willy nilly. LSD all over the place.
1: If you lived in San Francisco between 1955 and 1965, I wouldn't blame you for thinking this might happen to you.
2: Because it might have. Yeah. It's, it's terrible because the CIA felt that this population were the perfect test subjects because they were just degenerates anyway.
1: <laughs> God, CIA, stop it. you are terrible. Hi, NSA. <laughs> I'm sure White moved on with his life later and look back and was like, ah, it's so when I was a kid, I didn't know what I was doing, I shouldn't have done that, I feel a little bad.
2: White was a nut job. He was just kind of crazy the rest of his life. We talked about his, writing his autobiography of his crazy adventures as a narcotic officer. He also wrote to Gottlieb in 1971 in a letter as to quote, of course I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyard because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, and cheat, steal, deceive, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all-highest? Pretty good stuff, brother.
1: He actually wrote "brother."
2: Yeah, like Hulk Hogan.
1: This fella, he's a piece of work, I tell ya. But it's a good thing they got rid of all those sex perverts that were working in the government.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, the CIA had their little brothel, and they also were still hosting parties in New York. This was through the fifties and mid sixties. Post to post, babe. Yeah, we're hitting all of spots. They also were giving out grants. Oh, how kind of them! Yeah, you know they developed these research grant organizations and no one knew they were linked to the cia and they were giving out grants to universities and research institutions and hospitals
1: it all so kind yeah, of them, right? Yeah,
2: to do this kind of covert lsd research oh. and mind control research
1: oh yeah oh.
2: and so 12 hospitals were involved including one that experimented on terminal cancer patients without their knowledge
1: but they gave him lsd yeah
2: Kind of not that bad. <laughs> uh, it kind of depends on how you look at it. Three prisons. One... They did experiments on criminal sexual sociopaths. Oh, good. Then they also did research at the National Institute of Mental Health Addiction Research Center at the Lexington Rehab Center.
1: Oh, is this the stuff you're talking about where it made it so much easier for them to stop with the alcohol and all that kind of stuff?
2: No. So this is an experiment where they got people to do it willingly because they promised them the drug of their choice if they experimented with them.
1: This sounds like college.
2: <laughs> Basically. <laughs> If you participated and you were a heroin addict, you would first do a little LSD. Uh-huh. And then they'd give you some heroin. For your trouble. Thanks. Uncle Sam says thanks.
1: Government-sponsored brothels and drug addictions. Yay!
2: Somehow, America
1: found a way not to keep all the fun for itself. In the late 1950s, CIA-funded psychiatrists in Montreal... Who administered an array of drugs and electric shock treatments to people who had checked themselves in for problems ranging from anxiety to postpartum depression.
2: I cannot believe like, taking these poor women that just had kids and, like, shocking them.
1: <laughs> Straighten up, Betty. Get your shit together. You have breakfast to make.
2: You need the- <laughs> to feed the babies.
1: <laughs> Actually makes a lot of sense to me. Um. So they, they did sue. And the U.S. government has paid more than a million dollars to nine Canadians. Sounds right. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm amazed that the total's that low, honestly. And, you know, a couple people may have died as a result of the CIA's fondness for LSD.
2: It's important to say that the deaths were not at the end.
1: (laughs) No. They weren't like, and then they stopped because people died. No. (laughs) No.
2: Okay, so one of them was doctor Frank Olson, and he was a biological researcher for the CIA. And he attended a conference in Deer Creek Lake in Maryland in nineteen fifty three, so it's very much at the beginning of this. And this is when they were still kind of dosing each other.
1: Yeah, they they spiked some drinks and like didn't tell anybody they were gonna do it and everybody else kind of moved on with their lives after they had their crazy trip. But it sort of locked Olsen into this, like, spiral of depression, it seems.
2: Yeah, he started having, like, symptoms of paranoia and schizophrenia.
1: Less than positive.
2: And so while all the other scientists recovered, he was in this crazy kind of depressive loop. And he was brought in by the CIA. They were going to take him to a psychiatric facility to get help. Okay. And so he was with a CIA agent at a hotel that night.
1: Were there toulouse track paintings?
2: <laughs> probably so. That night, the CIA officer, Lashbrook, woke to a loud crash of glass. Olsen had crashed through the closed window blind and the closed window, and he fell to his death from the window of our room on the 10th floor.
1: Yeah, but, you know... There were also signs that he may have been just hit in the head and thrown out a window.
2: Yeah, that was kind of found out a lot later. A little blunt force drama into the back of his head. Hmm. Hmm.
1: And then there was another instance with a woman named Barbara Newsom, And she was part of a swinging circle of a friend of White's. And she attended one of White's parties and she brought her 20-month-old daughter
2: Yeah, I'm guessing this wasn't one of those swinging parties.
1: I think we're assuming too much credibility, (laughs) but I don't know. And she was admitted to site facilities on and off for the next...
2: There's all kind of conspiracy theories about her if you want to go down that rabbit hole. So we talked about what White did after all of this, and Dr. Godlia retired, and he actually spent the rest of his life working with dying AIDS and cancer patients. And he was working, as he said, on the side of the angels instead of the devil. And he actually became a Zen Buddhist. You
1: know who else became a Zen Buddhist? Who's that? Ginsburg.
2: Hmm. I'm sure he was. They were both taking a little bit of acid. Uh, it
1: seems like Buddha and acid go together like peas and carrots.
2: And so eventually, this all came out. It first came out in a New York Times article in 1974.
1: Well, that's interesting because they burned all the files in 1973. Yes. Okay.
2: So after all the files were burned, a year later, they exposed some of the ideas behind it. Oh my God, look at this list of names. Yeah. And so Donald Rumsfeld, then Chief of Staff for President Ford and Rumsfeld's deputy, Dick Cheney, wanted Hirsch prosecuted for revealing government secrets. But Ford did not listen to them, and he appointed a committee chaired by Vice President Rockefeller.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: And Senator Church also headed a congressional investigation. They are also called the Church Committee.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard that. that.
2: Yeah. Um, they investigated it in 1974 and then later had to do the investigation again because someone had filed a Freedom of Information Act and actually was able to find a bunch of documents that had not been burned. And with that information, they were able to go on and investigate a lot further into this and get a lot of the details that we know now. You know, there's a very controversial and important book about this called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate by John Marks that came out in 1979.
1: I mean, you just glossed over this, but Teddy Kennedy was one of the ones that held the hearings.
2: Yes. Yeah. And there some actual, like, some of the quotes I said may have been from him. Like, a lot of the questioning was him. He was the big pusher of it.
1: It looks like Goatly really didn't want to talk about MKUltra. Right.
2: The only way he would talk is if they gave him kind of immunity.
1: I don't blame him.
2: No. Yeah, definitely.
1: I I would. Yeah. I would not want to talk about it either. So Teddy Kennedy was like, my brother got hooked on LSD because of the government
2: (laughs) and went after him. Is that your Kennedy
1: impression? I'm not doing a Boston accent. I have too many R's for that. No one was so much punished for MKUltra as maybe discredited or mocked relentlessly.
2: Yeah, well, Schlesinger, our favorite CIA operative, he did decree that the CIA would not do anything illegal after this. We'll see how that pans out. (laughs) Don't you think all of the stuff that Rumsfeld and Cheney were saying sound a whole lot like Snowden?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, gosh, history. Stop repeating yourself
2: it's all this is only like 50 years ago i feel like our memory just
1: keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter (gasps) and our mistakes are better documented than ever
2: blame it on the lsd
1: lsd ruined everything getting bad flashbacks
2: so it's it's really interesting that both of the things we've talked about leary ginsburg the beat movement all of those kind of Positive associations were going on with LSD.
1: Larry got a little cray-cray to the inlets, let's be fair. So but, really just Ginsburg. <laughs> I
2: mean, he had positive No, motives. no, he went a little cray-cray-cray. Yeah. But then you have this really negative side of it where you have the CIA and it's just all about mind control and brainwashing and they're tricking people and it's just this really dark moment In the many dark moments we have as a country. (laughs) Sounds like one hell of a bad trip. (laughs) Exactly. So Leary is one of the first people that wrote about how important our context is in taking drugs. And so that that plays into any kind of mind-altering substance. You know, if you take alcohol, you can drink a glass of beer or, you know, a bottle of wine. And if you're in a bad mood, it's going to just make you feel more like shit. Mm -hmm. But if you're out having a good time, you're hanging out with friends, and you have a bottle of wine, you're going to feel completely different. Right. But with things like psychogenic drugs, like LSD, that is even more important. Okay. And so the idea of having a good trip, the things that ginsberg was talking about this oneness with the universe, this breaking down of our, uh, the connections in our brain, and also the breaking down of that barrier between us and the rest of the world, is really all related to context. Because then you get other examples like Dr. Olson, who was in a bad place and was given it without his knowledge, and had these really, really negative effects.
1: That could have been exasperated by someone hitting him in the back of the head.
2: Yeah, well, but he was already kind of. <laughs> yeah, it didn't
1: sound like he was doing too well to begin with. But I'm just so who's our poster child for a good trip?
2: So while all these LSD experiments are pretty much just terrible, there are some interesting things that came out of it. You know, you have the International Foundation for Advanced Study in Menlo Park.
1: Menlo Park.
2: In California.
1: I know Menlo Park. Uh huh. Jerry Garcia went to Menlo Park. This foundation invited scientists from places like Stanford and Hewlett-Packard, other places, to come and participate in this fantastic opportunity. And they asked their volunteers to bring, and notice they are volunteers, to bring three highly technical problems from their respective field that they'd been unable to solve for at least several months. And then they offered all of their participants a relatively low dose of acid, a hundred micrograms to enhance their creativity. Participants said that their minds had blossomed and that they had contacted
2: with the universe. <laughs> Sounds ominous at the. Sound I don't here. think the
1: universe was to connect with me. They beheld irregular but clean geometrical patterns glistening into infinity. They felt a rightness before solutions manifested, and they even shape shifted into relevant formulas, concepts, and raw materials. The mathematical theorem for Norgate, circuits, a conceptual model of a photon, linear electron accelerator beam steering device, a new design for vibratory microtome a technical improvement of magnetic tape recorder, blueprints for a private residency, and an arts and crafts shopping plaza, and a space probe, experiment designed to measure solar properties, all came from Menlo Park. I'm so sorry about the thunder.
2: The thunder's making me think that these are not good ideas. This is supposed to be the positive. Shh. This leads us to one of my favorite authors.
1: Okay, you have so many. You've got to
2: narrow it down. I have a lot. But this one is Ken Casey.
1: Oh, I love him.
2: Yeah, he wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest.
1: And that's really all you need to know.
2: And that also became an amazing movie. Jack Nicholson. should go pause and go read and watch both of those things. We'll
1: wait. How was it? Yeah, I know she's terrifying, right?
2: That is Danny DeVito. (laughs) (laughs) Ken Casey was a writer that moved to California. He accepted a fellowship at Stanford mm-hmm. as a writer. And while he was doing that, he also worked at the VA hospital in Menlo Park. While he was there, he volunteered to take part in an MKUltra experiment, where he was giving several drugs, including LSD. And he credits his time at the hospital and his experience while high on LSD um, with Inspiring the book you know, because while he was tripping, he would go and talk to the patients in the psychiatric ward.
1: Well, yeah, that's not a big leap. I guess that makes sense.
2: But he has a great quote about the experiments. He's, he compared it to scientists finding a haunted house. He said, The scientists didn't have the guts to do it themselves, so they hired students. Hey, we found this room. Would you please go inside and let us know what's going on in there? When we came back out, they took one look at us and said, whatever they do, don't let them go back in that room.
1: (laughs) So when I was in high school, I read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on your recommendation,
2: actually. That's right. That's like right when we started Mm -hmm. dating.
1: My parents have this office that was disconnected from the house. It's connected to our barn because we live in the middle of nowhere. And that's the ritzy office that we have. So I went up there to work on my project one night. And my sister's ex-boyfriend, who was like 20 or 25 years older than me, was in the other room doing some finishing on the office. And I'm in there and I'm making this like mixed media project to do with my presentation. And I have like bandages and I'm wrapping these big boards and bandages and making my One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest collage, whatever, high school English. (laughs) From the other room, I hear this like blood curdling scream. And he walks in, and he's like, I had a little accident, and I look, and he's got the circular saw stuck in his palm. Oh, my God. So I had to unmake my project and use the bandages that I was going to use on my Once Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest project to bandage my sister's ex-boyfriend's hand.
2: I'm going to blame them on the CIA.
1: I think it's their fault. But anyway, that's my association with Ken Kesey.
2: So, as we said, you know... The scientists were like, "Don't go back in that room."
1: Yeah, so he went back in the room. He, he
2: created the room <laughs> so and put it on wheels. He well, along he along with several other people formed the Merry Pranksters.
1: <laughs> sounds fantastic.
2: And they kind of lived communally <laughs> in his houses in California and Oregon, and you know they would consume LSD and have parties, uh, things they called the acid test. Oh
1: well. You know, that's what the CIA called them too.
2: Interesting. He was friends with Neil Cassidy, who was another big beat mover and shaker, and was introduced to Kerouac and Ginsburg in that way. Well, he also was friends with the Grateful Dead.
1: Right, because Jerry Garcia was involved with Menlo Park, tangentially, I think.
2: They actually played at these acid test parties.
1: I want to go!
2: But this really took full fruition. Whenever they did the... Electric Kool Aid Acid Test, which is the best name for a book ever. So, in 1964, he was having his second novel published, and he needed to travel from California to New York. So, he and his gang of merry pranksters got a school bus, painted it in psychedelic colors christened it further and took an american road trip from west to east coast you know they said that they were kind of creating art out of everyday life and experiencing america while they were on lsd and this experience is what inspired the extremely important american novel the electric kool-aid acid test by tom Wolfe.
1: And Tom Wolfe, for those of you who don't know, is the guy who says you can't go home again, which is pretty important to quote. You feel like I feel like everybody's heard that at least once, right?
2: And so while talking about his use of acid, he said, I believe that with the advent of acid, we discovered a new way to think. And it had to do with piecing together new thoughts in your mind. Why is it that people think it's so evil? What is it about it that scares people so deeply? Even the guy that invented it. What is it? Because they're afraid that there's more to reality than they have confronted. That there are doors that they're afraid to go in. And they don't want us to go in there either. Because if we go in, we might learn something they don't know. And that makes us a little out of their control.
1: Well, this is definitely subverting the mind control idea, isn't it? (laughs) It's freeing your mind. As opposed to allowing other
2: people to drive you. And he's talking about it in a very positive light. But there can be very negative effects to it. So when you think of the negative effects, what do you think of?
1: Bad trips, man.
2: Yeah, bad trips. And, you know, those are real things. And that's associated with panic attacks and just high anxiety. And it also has to do with that break of kind of our logic system and how we can, you know, worry that this trip is never going to end. And those that already have some kind of, like, psychosis and psychological problems, it can really make them a lot worse, which is probably what happened with Dr. Olson.
1: Right. And anything related to psychosis can get worse, right?
2: Yeah, and then you can also have, like, PTSD related to these bad trips. And you can have flashbacks months or years later.
1: Just like in your everyday life when you're, like, sitting around? Yeah. That's crazy. I thought that... You're referring to, like, people experiencing, like, PTSD while they were in the bad trip. Like, having flashbacks to a traumatic experience. But the idea that you could flashback to a bad trip when you're, like, buying lettuce... Yeah. ...is terrifying. You know another negative effect of maybe hallucinogens? And definitely creepy CIA experiments? What's that? Bombs. What do you mean? Well... There was one guy, and his name was Theodore Kaczynski. Okay. And he participated in some interesting experiments during his time at Harvard. And I think it may have had a really
2: lasting effect on his worldview. Okay, well, what kind of experiments? I mean, he was like MKUltra stuff?
1: It was, it was related. Ted was studying, he was doing his undergrad at Harvard, and he started school when he was 16 because he'd skipped two grades. He's incredibly smart. He had an IQ of about 167. Very bright guy. And this is in the early 60s. And he went on to get his PhD in math and taught at Berkeley for a while before moving to Montana. And he went under the care, tutelage, control, something of uh, a man named Harry Murray, who is the head of the Department of Social Relations at Harvard. And he was this guy who was very interested in the intersection of psychology and sociology. So he became interested in those topics when he gave Sigmund Freud for 500 LSD. No, he gave him a copy of Moby Dick and Freud read it and reported back to him that the whale was obviously a father figure. (laughs) Of course. So at that point, Murray was hooked. But his theory, his central thesis, the thing he wrote on the most, was called the dyad. And it sort of replaced standalone ego or self, one person, with the idea that you're a dyad or the smallest unit of social building. And he was very interested in collapsing everything into like a world government. He believed that we had to stop being national and start being more worldly
2: I don't know why all these conspiracy theories think that the CIA is out to experiment on us and create a one world government.
1: I don't either. He was, but like, he was openly a fan of the one world government. And so he was where he at Harvard, but during the war, World War II, he had worked with the predecessor of the CIA, Office of Strategic Services, and he was sort of inspired by the bomb to really break down the individual's walls. And he kind of put this into practice when he was devising a psychological screening test. And according to Timothy Leary, who came back to Harvard around the end of Murray's tenure, he was very interested in brainwashing and mind-altering hallucinogenic drugs.
2: Okay. So what did he do while he was at Harvard?
1: Well, he did a thing called the Multiform Assessment of Personality Development Among Gifted College Men.
2: So, I'm guessing that Ted Kaczynski was a part of this.
1: He was. You said he was pressured into doing it. And I don't know exactly what that means. Students were reimbursed for their time and got some credits and stuff. But really, I'm not sure that the benefits outweigh the cost. Because it sounds like it was pretty fucking horrible. They would do like these mock interrogations, or. But he would have the volunteers write out like these long essays about like their belief systems. And they went through a battery of tests like Rorschach tests and smell association tests and these big multifaceted personality inventories. And he would get them to write about toilet training and thumb sucking and erotic fantasies, masturbation, (laughs) etc. Which
2: are all the Freudian stages of development. (laughs) Freudian stages of
1: development. And then he'd give them like a young lawyer, usually like a student or somebody who's fresh out of law school, And he would strap the subject in a chair and hook them up to electrodes and other equipment. And then he'd go on the other side of a two-way mirror and watch as this older man came in and interrogated them about their belief system and basically tried to pick it apart. And they had to stand up for it and insist on their own personal beliefs. And they would invariably do pretty and get really upset they were in these rooms with like brightly bright 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 lights that would flash and stuff and they would monitor all their physiological responses to this systematic dismantling of their worldview
2: sounds like something out of anthony Burgess, like oh my god orange it sounds kind of stuff. so made
1: up right and there may have been a little lsd involved but we don't know because all the documents were burned in 1973 um, a
2: lot of people think it was
1: yeah a lot of people think it was Kaczynski says he can't be sure, interestingly, and his nickname during all of this, because all of the subjects were given code names, was Lawful. Waffle? Lawful. Falafel. La- Is that his porn name?
2: Full. White
1: Falafel. <laughs> so Leary came back to Harvard while all this was going on, and Murray okayed his experimentation with psilocybin and other hallucinogens, and he kind of said, yeah, you can just use these kids, I'm experimenting, on. Oh, that's cool. So there's... A really good chance that that young Teddy was indeed exposed to some shrooms or things. Leary reported on this pretty extensively. And years later, David Kaczynski, who was Ted's brother, wrote an article that was titled, Was my brother a sort of Manchurian candidate programmed to kill by our government in the CIA thought experiment gone awry?
2: I bet he said yes. <laughs> Well, it's possible. So, okay, so all these crazy experiments that I can't imagine going through happened. I mean, what happened after he went on and got his PhD in math, which you've got to be pretty crazy to do that? (laughs) To begin with,
1: and moved to Montana and lived in a cabin with all electricity. Well, Teddy started mailing bombs.
2: Wait, what do you mean?
1: He started making bombs and mailing them.
2: Okay. Oh, okay. Ted Kaczynski. You're not putting it together. No, it sounds familiar. The Unabomber. So he made like one bomb. No,
1: you you know how like anybody in an official position of power feels like they can exercise that power by creating like acronyms and weird words. Yeah, make two sound smart. He sent his bombs to usually universities or airlines. So they did U-N-A bomber. Oh, okay. and I Yeah, I always so, thought it was uni, like one. Right. So, you
2: know? so Ted Kaczynski, the famous Unabomber, yeah. the, the, who yeah. looks a lot like Weird Al. Yeah,
1: God, I know.
2: Was mailing out bombs to universities and airlines and things like that. When did that start? In
1: 1978.
2: I mean, how did we actually catch this guy? How did we find out who he was?
1: Well, um, forensic linguistics...
2: That sounds like a whole paid box.
1: It is, but Teddy liked to write. I'm going to call him Teddy. I don't know why I feel it feels right. So Teddy liked to write and he started writing in 1995, which might give you some idea about the longevity of his career as a terrorist. And he would write really extensive, long statements about why he was doing what he was doing. And some people kind of think that he started doing that after the Oklahoma City bombing because he was afraid that somebody else was kind of getting on his turf. Well, and other people, and probably the more rational people, say that he was afraid people were going to think he had done that. Oh, okay. And he was like, ah, no, I would not kill a whole bunch of people. That'd be terrible. Even though his first bomb was supposed to be put on an
2: airplane and kill 212 people, but
1: it didn't happen. And he kind of thought about it later and was like, oh, that would have been terrible. Okay. So he wrote
2: all these things. Any enlightening information from this?
1: Um, well, he did write a 35,000-word manifesto.
2: Oh, as all great sociopaths do.
1: So some, some choice quotes from Kaczynski's manifesto, which he actually did not entitle manifesto. That was a label put on it by the media, which I think was fair.
2: That was not a stretch.
1: Yeah, but he titled it thoughtfully. Here's some choice excerpts. So... By forcing people to conform to machines rather than vice versa, technology creates a sick society hostile to human potential. Because technology demands constant change, it destroys local, human-scale communities. Because it requires a high degree of social and economic organization, it encourages the growth of crowded, unlivable cities and megastates
2: indifferent to the needs of citizens. So he had a problem with just all of society's structure in general.
1: And technology. Yeah. Real problem with technology. Yeah, because he
2: moved that's why he moved out into a cabin in the woods and didn't have electricity, electricity,
1: yeah, things like that. And then he says it may please our society to regard it as sickness, any mode of thought or behavior that is inconvenient for the system. And this is plausible because when an individual doesn't fit into the system, it causes pain to the individual as well as problems for the system. Thus, the manipulation of an individual to adjust him to the system is seen as a cure for sickness and therefore good.
2: Wow, what would Freud say about that?
1: What would Murray say about that?
2: Very interesting.
1: And then he goes on to talk about how our society has an infrastructure dedicated to modifying behavior.
2: You have to wonder if his penchant for writing all of his beliefs down (laughs) was caused by Murray or just being crazy.
1: The outline for this document looks like it might have been related to the test.
2: That is very interesting.
1: So he wrote very eloquently. I mean, you have to remember he was a genius, like literally, that's not a subjective judgment on his choice of artistic medium. He was literally a genius and he, he wrote very eloquently about his beliefs that we were getting too far away from nature and that you know we were going to cause our own downfall and he targeted places like the california forestry bureau and one of the last people he killed was the head of forestry in california you have to think that maybe that his rejection of this like collective society and his incredible insistence on isolation and self may have been influenced by having that broken down when he was like 17
2: years old. Yeah, that is just so interesting. I mean, so he eventually was caught.
1: He was. They recognized some some features of his writing um, as being very academic. The 35,000-word document that he sent to the New York Times, Washington Post, was formatted very similarly to a thesis that would have been written in the late <laughs> 60s. And the analyst working on that Recognized the patterns and was able to kind of say, oh, I think he's a little older than we thought and say, I think he has more education than we previously thought. He also went out of his way to mention that he had no college education twice. And it was the only personal detail he ever gave.
2: Don't think of pink elephants.
1: Yeah. And they're like, mm, maybe he has a PhD in mathematics. Just guessing.
2: I was thinking maybe uh, he's a pink elephant, whatever. Yeah,
1: whatever. So he did that. And then there was actually so interestingly, his brother recognized the writing and brought in a lot of his old writing. And they saw that in a letter to someone on their birthday, when Ted was younger, he'd written, You can't have your cake and eat it too.
2: Oh, so you like messed up that saying? It's actually correct. Oh. Everyone <laughs> else messes it up.
1: Man has 167 IQ. Don't call him on his shit. <laughs> um, but the Unabomber had also used the phrase, You can't have your cake and eat it too,
2: in his letters to the post. So this is all Marie Antoinette's
1: <laughs> It basically is. But they went out to his cabin, and they found a bomb in the making. And they were like, oh, by the way, that's not a good idea. And they arrested him, and they took him in. And he wanted to represent himself, because they kept trying to insist that he, wasn't, he was crazy. And he's like, I'm not crazy. I don't want the insanity defense. And none of his lawyers would go for it. And he was like, "So I'll just represent myself," and they were like, oh, "But you're not competent to, to represent yourself because you're crazy." So he's caught in this really weird loop, and people were accusing him of insanity, and people were saying he had paranoid delusions and all this stuff. And he's Probably like, all true. I don't know
2: it all. No, oh my God. You can't be paranoid if it's true. <laughs> I guess it's a good point.
1: He actually was like the subject of horrible government experiments. Yeah, they were trying to break down the individual self and make him into a, like dyad, just one unit in society.
2: So he was right.
1: <laughs> I kind of think he was. I mean, he shouldn't have killed people. That was not good judgment, Daddy. But like, you can't be paranoid if it's true.
2: In reality, it probably was that he was a par. He was kind of a paranoid, delusional, maybe paranoid schizophrenic. And this just made it a thousand times worse.
1: No, I think he just... No, I don't think he was... I do not think he was a schizophrenic.
2: Or like just paranoid delusional, you know.
1: I don't think he was delusional. It happened! It was not just a story.
2: (laughs) Well, we will just agree to disagree. (laughs) You can be on the Unabomber side.
1: (laughs) I don't think he should have mailed bombs. That was a terrible plan interestingly they found the first bomb sitting on the ground by a mailbox and they went and like set it off and nobody heard and they were like i wonder why wonder why he didn't mail that one later when they realized it was him and they went and like looked at the dimensions of the box and he'd made it too big to fit in the mailbox
2: she was like i'm just gonna put this here (laughs) so yeah genius
1: yeah nasa's never made a mistake either
2: never moved to decimal point the wrong spot (laughs) so much lsd (laughs) That is a great example of how LSD used in a really negative way can lead to some terribly negative consequences. Like mailing some bombs. Uh, And, and, I mean, of course, all the horrible things that the CIA did. You know, we talked about some of the positive things, too, and like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of new research into LSD. It's extremely interesting. I mean, it's just small little studies, small sample sizes, so you can't really extrapolate too much from it, but... These are kind of what's like discovery research. Like you you were doing it to say, hey, look, maybe this is true. We should do a big study. Give me some money, (laughs) funding to do it, and maybe some LSD too. (laughs) <laughs> Give me money and drugs and I'll do all the research. So as we mentioned, you know, whenever you're taking these psychedelics like psilocybin or LSD, there's a change in how the brain's functioning. It, it just breaks down that default mode network, which is a group of brain structures found in the frontal and prefrontal cortex. And that's what's responsible for your ego or your sense of self. Mm-hmm. And so that's when you can have that ego breakdown. You can stop with this kind of rigid, habitual thinking that we normally have, and you're able to kind of go past those boundaries, and those walls dissolve.
1: So maybe, if somebody had just slipped Teddy some LSD later in life...
2: Or had not done it under such dire circumstances. (laughs) You know, in 2006, John Hopkins did a study with 36 volunteers... And showed that after use with the psychedelics, they were more sensitive, compassionate, tolerant, and have increased positive relationships and increased need to serve others. Some other modern-day greats that um, have kind of supported these ideas are Steve Jobs Uh and Tim Ferriss and Oliver Sacks.
1: Well, anything Oliver Sacks says... Is gospel.
2: Yeah, I'm just on board. So you can see that if you take it in a really positive way, as we talked about with King Casey, if you're in a positive place, if you know what you're getting yourself into, it can lead to some good things. But... If
1: you happen to be a young kid away at school when you're almost too young to be there and be forced into a chair where you have to defend your belief system... And have electrodes hooked up to you and get berated for hours and abused. And, you know, you're dosed with psychotropic drugs. You might become the Unabomber. But even if you live through that hell, come out the other side and find yourself desperately trying to warn the public of the dangers of trusting the government, people will tell you.
2: That's just a story. It's
1: just a story.